Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Stocks rebound sharply globally on merger news and better U.S. retail sales. J.P. Morgan's profit drops more than 7% after the Madoff settlements. General Motors pays its first quarterly dividend uh, since it went bankrupt. And China's provinces set lower growth targets. First, a little food for thought this morning. The Fed's policies have actually led to a lot of problems around the world in the sense that they're not only responsible, but partly responsible that energy prices are where they are. That is Mark Faber on the problems with QE. More on that in a moment, especially on how it relates to our own problems here in Hong Kong, difficulties with inequality uh, in society. In our featured segments, will China's economy be resilient this year? Some analysts think conditions are stabilizing instead of deteriorating, which you've heard from others. Uh, they say that the economy is on track for another year of growth in the high single digits. That said, at least seven provinces in China are lowering targets. So we'll be talking about that with Reorient Steve Wong. He'll be along in just a few minutes. And we'll also take a look at Japan and what some analysts believe is a huge turnaround story. Former Japan resident Paul Schulte, who now heads the Hong Kong advisory firm Schulte Research International, will explain why he thinks a post-deflationary Japan looks like a good bet. And we'll see if we can bring all that round to Hong Kong uh, today, too, about inequality in our society and probably what is on uh, C.Y. Lung's mind as he gets ready to deliver his policy address. Well, the markets, we'll get that to you in just a moment. Uh, on Wall Street, stocks rose on merger news and decent, if uh, not great, retail sales. It was the biggest gain of the year for the S&P 500. The S&P was up 1.1% 1 .1 at 1838. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 115 points to 16,373. Investors came back in, even though one of the Fed presidents, Richard Fisher, said that the Fed should speed up its exit. Well, I was actually quite pleased with that decision to finally begin tapering our bond purchases, though I would have preferred to have pulled back by double that amount at that meeting. But the important thing for me is that the committee began the process of slowing down the ballooning of our balance sheet, which at year-end exceeded $4 trillion. So it sort of adds to the question, if the economy is not doing as well as maybe we thought a couple of weeks back, uh, is it really good for stocks when the Fed seems pretty well prepared to stay the course on getting out of uh, its monetary stimulus? Well, Google added 2.4% after agreeing to buy digital thermostat maker Nest Labs. Time Warner Cable up 2.7%. It rejected the acquisition offer we told you about yesterday from Charter Communications. J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, little changed after reporting fourth quarter results that were basically uh, pretty solid, a little bit better than expected. The S&P 500 index trades at 15.6 times the estimated earnings of its members. That's a little over the average multiple of 14.1 over the past five years. But given the low interest rates, some uh, market watchers say that values are reasonable. However, Maverick investor Mark Faber is not one of them. He thinks the world is awash in cash and that there's a financial bubble. In some comments with Bloomberg, he says there is much inequality in the world. We have to distinguish between the financial economy, the financial sector and the economy of the well-to-do people that benefit from rising asset prices, from rising prices of wines and paintings and art 
and bonds and equities and high-end properties in the Hamptons and uh, West uh, 15 here in New York and so forth. And uh, the average person, the typical household, the so-called median household or the working class people. And the Fed's policies have actually led to a lot of problems around the world in the sense that they're not only responsible, but partly responsible that energy prices are where they are. They're up from $10, uh, $12 in uh, 1999 to now around $100 a barrel. And uh, food prices are up and a lot of other prices are up. And he says that that seriously affects the working class. For the poor people, it has an impact. Yeah. Uh, some people in the lower income groups, they spend, say, 30% of their income on energy, transportation, and so forth, electricity, and gasoline. So the Fed is creating a two-class system? Correct, largely. And the problem is then that and, you and, have and people like Bill de Blasio, they come in and say, you know what's the problem? All these rich guys... Because of these rich people, you are poor. They take advantage of you. So let's go and tax them. And the IMF has come out with a paper in Europe that essentially the well-to-do people uh, should pay a 10% wealth tax, a one-time wealth tax. But I can assure you, one-time wealth tax... 10% 10% will become a every year's tax, <laughs> but, eventually. But from the point of view of the government, I mean, what low rates in theory should help people who need to borrow or put kids through college. I mean, how do you help, how do you help, how do you help the people on the lower end? Well, this is the point I'd like to make. All these professors and academics at the Fed who never really worked in the private sector a single day in their lives <laughs> and write papers nobody reads and nobody's interested in. Why would they once not write about how do you structure an economic system that lifts the standards of living of most people? You can't lift everybody. You don't everybody. think we have that, Mark? Well, we had it in the 19th century in the U.S. because we had very small government. At the time, the entire government, local, state, uh, federal, was less than 20% of the economy. Now it's like close to 50% so of the economy. So the government's economy. spending too much money. The larger the government becomes, the less economic growth you have and the more crony capitalism and corruptions you have. Because big corporations, and especially the money printers, they're the most powerful people in the world. They control the governments. The U.S. Treasury... Uh, the Federal Reserve and the government is one and the same. The Fed, they finance the Treasury. So the government can go to war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Oh, yes. Then they tra- finance transfer payments uh-huh. to essentially buy votes so you can get elected. He has Mark Faber there from his own firm speaking on Bloomberg with Adam Johnson and Trish Regan there. Just thought it um, set up an interesting discussion with Paul Schulte, uh, and it also um, kind of defines some of the big problems that C.Y. Leung faces here in Hong Kong, and that is how to address inequality. And Mr. Faber believes that um, rich people are benefiting greatly, and that's why you see asset prices high and everybody doing well who can own assets, whereas people at the lower end struggling a bit. So let's 
say good morning now to Paul Schulte, CEO and chairman of Schulte Research International. Paul, hey, good morning. morning. I thought you'd be a good person. I know we said we'd talk about Japan, and we, we'll do that for sure. Uh, but in looking at the overall system, uh, it is interesting. There, Mark Faber is saying, you know, a smaller government will do the trick. On paper, at least, we have smaller government here in Hong Kong and very low tax regime, and yet we still have the same problems, uh, a very high Gini coefficient and a widening gap between rich and poor. How do we yeah. get at that? Well, th- yeah, no, these are all very good points, uh, profoundly important. The people who have access to leverage <clears throat> in an environment where central banks are, are reflating uh, are going to do better because they own these assets which are going up in price. And uh, therefore, basically, who is that? That's the rich. Um, poor people don't have access to credit and leverage. And so they are left behind in a world where we see uh, rising asset prices. Um, so, so, so this is a phenomenon. You, you can blame it on the Fed, you know, whatever. The, the, the Federal Reserve is owned by the banks. The Federal Reserve is not owned by the government. It is not owned by the Treasury Department. It is owned by the banks. Yeah, he, he's, he's wrong on paper, but what he's saying is that they all act in concert. Indeed, indeed. Yes, sir. Uh, so when we have a zero interest rate world... Uh, uh, Mervyn King said this very well when he was the governor of the Bank of England. He said, I am very sorry this reflation we are attempting is going to be a uh, terrible for the middle class. He was the only honest central bank governor in the world when he said it in a speech about two years ago. This is reflating is very bad for the middle class because it hurts them. They don't have access to credit. They don't have access to to rising asset prices. And they're going to bear the brunt of rising gasoline prices, rising food prices, and so forth. And and so are are rising interest rates and and tapering going to help the middle class? No way, right? So, you know, I don't know what the way out is, but... The, the part of it is has to be a redistribution of you know income um, through taxation in order to allow the middle class to get somewhere. My own um, bugbear here is education, right? You, you need to educate people for the next generation of information technology, which is basically turning the white collar into the blank collar. Um, you have to prepare people for the blank collar world because technology is wiping out millions of middle class white collar jobs. That's where I think we need to go with the discussion. I think everybody would agree with you, but it's difficult to figure out how to actually um, make that big push in into education. You can increase the spending, but you do have a certain number of people who perhaps they just don't have the skills. Um, I mean, you hate to say it, but some may not have the brain power to operate in the knowledge society. What do you do then? You don't have manufacturing jobs anymore. Indeed, sir. Um, you need to tell them that they need to, um, that the, here's an opportunity to go back to work if you want to take it uh, by way of, you know, getting educated and going back to school and retraining yourself and learning these skills you can. Otherwise, you know, we can't help you and you're going to be stuck in a um, lower middle income trap. I think being very honest and very clear about these things is the best way to go. Okay, let's take a little bit of a look now at uh, markets and then we'll have some discussion about Japan and and Hong Kong. We do see markets uh, surging this morning, so a better feed-in from Wall Street is making a difference. The Nikkei is up 263 points. That's 1.7% higher today. Uh, The Nikkei at 15,685. In Australia, the ASX 200 has rebounded three quarters of a percent, and in Seoul, the Kospi's up a third of a percent. 
Mark Faber mentioned oil prices, although he said they did go up from uh, $10 a barrel in 1999 to about $100. Uh, they had been up at 120 and now they're back down a little bit. Uh, 2013 was a year for oil prices going down. Brent crude now $106.39. And gold has found some footing here, $1,243.30. And just briefly in currencies, uh, we see a stronger dollar against the yen, so that helps Japanese equities. The dollar is now worth one hundred. 4.19 yen, and the euro is at 1.367 U.S. dollars. What interests you most at the moment, Paul, in global markets? I think the most fascinating data point that we can look at right now is something that nobody would have thought of even 12 months ago. Inflation in Japan is now higher than inflation in the U.S. and in the in the, in the European Union. That is a fact. Uh, inflation in Japan is about 1.2 percent right now. Europe is is flirting with deflation, by the way, which I think is going to make it impossible for uh, the ECB to engage in any sort of tapering. I think the ECB's balance sheet is going to expand. In the case of Japan, inflation is a fundamental, absolute, profoundly important, don't ignore this, game changer. Why? Inflation cha- fu- radically alters the whole structure of a bank. Uh, deflation murders a bank. Deflation is a death sentence for a bank. Inflation creates, in, inflation allows a bank and allows society to inflate away the debt. It encourages people to take on risk. Japan is actively now encouraging people to take on risk, to take loans. Uh, and it's also, uh, as, as you know, yesterday, uh, the, the whole financial sector was given a 2% pay increase. We are seeing short-term inflation expectation rise. We are seeing wage increases. This is really, really important for Japan because this is the first time in a generation in okay. 23 years we have seen inflation in Japan higher than the U.S. Or, is it, or Europe. Is it important for the rest of us? Because I remember last time you were on, you were saying that there are st- uh, still strong deflationary tendencies globally. And that yes, uh, if we don't beat that, then we've got a big problem for the next decade. Absolutely. That, and I think, I think that, you know, the, the Fed, the, the people at the Fed, independent of Mr. Fisher, get it. Uh, I think tapering right now makes no sense. You know, tapering in any dramatic way makes no sense. Uh, the ECB is now, you know, flirting with a zero inflation rate, which is super dangerous for a highly leveraged continent. And I think the only guys who really get it right now are the ones who are trying to aggressively uh, create inflation, which is Japan. Okay, so does Japan uh, show us that uh, if you do a little financial engineering, you can actually make a difference? And is that the same sort of thing? Will it feed out to the rest of the world? Um, that's a great point. The, the Bank of Japan's balance sheet has expanded, you know, super aggressively in the last, you know, 16 weeks. You, you, if you look at the Bank of Japan's balance sheet, it is incredibly impressive, about $400 billion expansion in uh, Bank of Japan balances. I think it will be important for Asia. Um, I think the yen is going to weaken. I think the weakness of the yen is a threat to China. It's a threat to Korea. Uh, and I think that a, a reflationary Japan um, coming back to life again, where where people take on credit rather than take on more JGBs, can cause Japan to wake up. And this is a threat to Asia, definitely. Okay. Um, are we seeing the structural reforms in Japan that were supposed to accompany the financial engineering? Well, that's right. Um, you know, Abe said well, it's a question. It's not a statement. It's right. a question. Are we seeing it? Because many people think we're not. Well, <clears throat> these, any structural reform takes a long, long time. You know, China's engaged in profound structural reform. Japan is. 
you know, Australia is trying to do this. Europe's trying. It takes a long, long time to change society. These are things, you know, that are often often the distance. If you don't create short-term inflation expectations, you're dead. So the Abe government gets that. So, so they, they've created short-term inflation expectations. That they're creating wage inflation expectations. Consumption is coming back to life. These are all the preconditions for structural change. Without these, you don't get it. All right, let me bring in Steve Wong, and he can join the discussion. And uh, and I'd hope, uh, Paul, you can stay with us until we finish the program at eight thirty, and we'll try to weave all of this together. Um, Steve, good morning. Hi. Yeah, I'm a little short on the voice this morning, struggling with a cold. So I'll kind of just give you the platform. Uh, we uh, we saw uh, overnight a story that uh, seven Chinese provinces are lowering growth targets. Um, that may be a good thing. Uh, perhaps it, uh, it makes uh, things more reasonable. However, it does suggest possibly lower growth overall for the country. Um, tell me if that matters. Is that what should happen? Sure. Let me just add in some background on that uh, GDP cut, I think, across some of the provinces. I think most of the provinces doing that is in the central, the western region, which already had very, very hard targets from last year. So this year's uh, tuning down is about one percentage point is uh, fairly reasonable, as you mentioned. I think the government certainly does not want provincial governments to use the GDP as a way of showing their performances. So this is one reason. And the second thing that I've noticed that, which the, most of the headline didn't catch, is that uh, coastal provinces on the eastern seaboard are actually st- considering uh, to hold or raise their growth target for next year. So all in all, you're seeing sort of a, a, a mixed signal, maybe from the western and center re- uh, and the eastern region. But I think it's basically the, going in line with Beijing's move that you know, the overall economy is still in a, in a phase of transformation. I think overall GDP growth may not slow significantly in the, in the coming years. So I'm putting a flat 7.7 GDP forecast for this year as compared okay. to last so year. So that's pretty solid, yes. uh, 7.7. Your house has been uh, positive on uh, China and on mm-hmm. the reforms uh, happening there, while being, uh, I would say, rather negative uh, on the U.S., uh, saying that uh, the U.S. is really actually in recession um, or, or close to it uh, and that, um, you know, that they're not going to be uh, calling in a lot of exports from China. So doesn't that rebound back on China? I think, um, OK, let me just uh, put that in perspective. I think China and U.S. has a very, very different economic structure to begin with. I mean, with U.S., you are struggling with a, as, a, as a demographic with a lot of people cannot find jobs, as uh, Paul have discussed. In China, there's still a lot of uh, growth opportunity uh, for the fresh, uh, fresh, fresh graduates, people looking to start up businesses. This year is a, is a year of private entrepreneurs. The IPO market is straightly geared toward the small and medium enterprises, private companies, state-owned enterprises are out of the out of the favor for this year. That's for sure. So, well, what is happening with the IPO policy? Because it almost seems like they flip flopped a little bit here of late. Yeah, I mean, I think IPO. In the in the back of last year, I mean, IPO basically was going to look like a bright star, you know, after almost more than one year of a, of a break. But really, what's happening is that, you know, with, with all good intentions, the government has setting all the proper uh, regulations to pre- prevent excess pricing of these IPO. But because people are so starved of new opportunities, you have investors, you have bankers looking for a bonus, you have uh, you know, company looking to 
desperately get the cash. So the pricing has been really outrageously still very high, and the allocation rate is somewhere close to 1%. I mean, think about that. You only get 1% of what you, what you put down. Yeah, and what about Paul's comment that what's happening in Japan is a big threat to China? Uh, well, China, from the data that I can see, I mean, China is actually doing more business with Japan with the, with the resurgent Japanese economy. Import-export data with Japan is getting better. Of course, there are some political issues, you know, back and, back and forth between the two countries. But overall, I think, I think in terms of auto sales, uh, Japanese auto sales is doing better. It's, a, it's always going to be a threat between and a competition. And I think on yesterday's uh, TVB, I, I, you know, they talked about Africa being the latest frontier where China and Japan is uh, fighting dim- diplomatically. Mm-hmm. I think that's quite interesting. So, of course, Japan, China, uh, big tension constantly going on there. But economy-wise, it seems to be doing a little, little bit better. Paul? Uh, yeah, Steve and I were talking about this earlier on, you know, I, I, uh, especially about the IPO market. I, I think what's happening in China, China gets it. China is is putting up all these companies that are really interesting. Uh, look at the top 68 companies that, that are on the queue for the Shanghai Stock Exchange. Not one of them is a bank. Look at what's happening in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is getting a, one bank after the other thrown on top of it. And I, I believe strongly, I think the Hong Kong Stock Exchange needs to you know, reassess this whole issue because you know, the, the, Hong Kong is just being buried in banks. And, 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 and I think the, the, the China Enterprise Index is getting on to around 45 percent of, of this China Enterprise Index is banks. And, and I think Hong Kong has missed the opportunity for Alibaba. Uh, and so I think that we need to really pay attention in Hong Kong uh, about what what the heck you know we're allowing to be listed here, because China gets it. China is not having any more banks listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. They're coming to Hong Kong, and that is not an ideal situation for the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Okay, so on the day of the policy address by the chief executive, would either of the two of you like to chime in on whether Hong Kong gets it overall? Does this administration, Steve, go to you first, uh, will the administration, in your view, uh, put in place uh, any measures today that um, will mark serious improvements in, in public governance? Oh, 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 I mean, I think, I think most of my Hong Kong friends said they still remain quite upset about the administration. I think they are, you know, people in my church, they have, have a lot of grief regarding what is going on. I think poverty measure, I mean, it's going to be a big thing, but I mean, exactly how it's going to de-stress a lot of the middle or the lower income class is, is really a, to- a topical issue right now. It, it really begs the question, um, how do you um, do poverty alleviation in, in today's world? Uh, do you just give them more money? Do you raise CSSA payments? We had uh, yesterday, we had uh, an important guest on uh, who said that that's one thing that should happen right away is that uh, welfare payments should be raised. People can't live on 3000 a month. Uh, perhaps I mean, but I think ultimately, like we, we talk about education just now, but I really believe in hard work. I mean, even in my job, I, I worked a heck of a lot of hours. You know, it's, there's no there's no free rifle. That's because you work for Uve. <laughs> <laughs> I work for you too. <laughs> well, it's true, and you do come on this program, uh, Paul. Um, if you could give one piece of advice to the chief executives today, what might it be? Uh, the, the, the financial system is vital in Hong Kong, and <clears throat> I think uh, Hong Kong needs to reassess the, the type and quality of institutions it allows to list in Hong Kong. And, and, uh, the, 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 the Hong Kong cannot rally because the supply of financials in Hong Kong is so enormous 
that there simply isn't the demand out there to cause any sort of meaningful rally. And so adding more banks to the China Enterprise Index, to the Hang Seng Index, is, I think, a recipe for disaster. For okay, Hong Kong so, in the long term. All right, enough difficult political questions to you guys. So let's talk a little bit about uh, making money in the short term. Uh, Paul, what's your best investment idea at the moment? Right now, I think we need to pay attention to Japan because uh, I can't tell you enough. You know, I, I've covered financials for many, many years, and the, the concept of creating inflation out of deflation is a, a, an absolute, profoundly important, fundamental game changer for financials. And so I think that Japan is going to be a winner this year, and I think the loser is going to be Southeast Asian financials. So I think some trade like that makes a lot of sense for 2014. And Steve, we had a, a, a commentator on yesterday mm. um, who said that it's actually the middle class that's suffering the most in China right now. The, the wealthy are doing great. And even people at the lower end, they feel very confident. They've got jobs uh, and they're upwardly mobile. Um, do you see that as accurate? And if you could combine that with um, what is your house looking for in terms of the best returns in China over the next year? Okay, let me just start with the returns first because that's what investors want to hear about. I think we've been talking about the two China theme, you know, the creation of a, a new technology-led mm-hmm. economy. Uh, on Monday, uh, Premier Li has, mentioned, has met some U.S. visitors, and they talked a lot about technology-led economy. China wants to import new clean tech. With the, with the economic base so large, it's very hard to think about. Uh, the pollution that brought about by just by, by just going about burning more coal or using more energy. So I think that sector, alternative energy, is one key one. And we have uh, also really liked the high-speed rail development recently, despite all the troubles it's having in the past. So those are the two top sector picks. And uh, the other other parts are really like just. Uh, just all kind of consumer and urbanization things. The services sector, those are going to be very, very important developments in 2014. Paul, you've made some positive comments about China, but uh, your top ideas are Japan-related. What about China? What do you like Yeah, there? I, I think to carry on from Steve, China is doing something which is riveting and fascinating. It is basically bypassing and it's actually leapfrogging the U.S. in terms of financial technology. That My number one theme for 2014 is financial technology. The way that the telephone is becoming a bank is the number one most important theme in the world right now because the people who grab the phone and make a bank out of the phone are going to make uh, billions of dollars. And China's doing that with so Tencent. Like Tencent and Alibaba. Absolutely. Uh, and and I, think, uh, I think Alibaba will become one of the biggest companies in the world within five years by market cap. So I definitely would think we need to pay attention to all these other companies which uh, create the guts of the phone and are creating a lot of these uh, financial uh, technology services through uh, the Internet and telephone services. That is the number one theme people need to pay attention to in okay. 2014. Okay, Paul, very good stuff. Thank you very much. Paul Schulte, CEO and Chairman Schulte Research International, and Steve Wong, Research Director at Reorient Financial. Money for Nothing at 8.30. The Work Incentive Transport Subsidy Scheme is open for applications. Eligible persons can choose to apply on their own or as a household, whether they are working full-time or part-time. Application forms are available at Labor Department job centers, public inquiry service centers of the Home Affairs Department, and Social Security field units of the Social Welfare Department, or can be downloaded from the Labor Department website. For inquiries, please call 2717-1771. 
Kind of a bumper day in the markets. Everything's up about half a percent to one and a half percent. And the weather is looking okay, too. Fine and dry. Cold in the morning. The temperature's up around 16 during the day. Coming up next, the news and then back chat here on Radio 3. Eight thirty one, the news with Samantha Butler. Poverty alleviation is expected to top CY Leung's agenda as the chief executive unveils new initiatives in his second policy address later this morning. He's said his focus will be on helping poor families and minority groups as well as nurturing the next generation. The most significant item may be a new monthly subsidy for low-income families. Israel has tried to defuse a row with its main ally, the United States, after its defense minister was quoted as describing the Secretary of State John Kerry as messianic and obsessive in his search for peace in the Middle East. A late-night statement issued by the Israeli Defense Ministry apologized for any offense caused by Moshe Yalon's remarks, which were published by an Israeli newspaper. <clears throat> Earlier, a State Department spokeswoman, Marie Half, condemned the comments. Secretary Kerry and his team have been working day and night to try to promote a secure peace for Israel because of the Secretary's deep concern for